This is Pastor William. On behalf of the members of Providence Baptist Church, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thank you for joining us. It is our joy to share God's truth, and we trust that the preaching of God's Word will always bless His people. But we humbly remind you that no recording can ever replace biblical corporate worship or true Christian fellowship. So we encourage everyone everywhere to commit themselves to the service of God's kingdom in a local church. And we pray that the Lord keep and bless you as you continue to earnestly seek Him. Amen. Amen. Please be seated and open with me again to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. So last time, one of the things we considered was how we can rid ourselves of fear and gain true assurance. And today I want to continue with that theme and talking about um, the hope that we have from that. I want to tell you again that uh, you do not have to live in fear. I know that some of you are struggling against some difficult things uh, right now as we speak. Some of you are struggling with your own sin. Some of you are struggling with the sin of others, and some of you are struggling with both. And some of you are struggling with doubt. But I want to tell you, do not be discouraged. Believe the Word of God. Continue in your struggle against sin. And continue in your struggle against the doubt. And cling to the promises of God. Because the promises of God are reliable. So our focus today is on Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. But I want to begin at verse 9, because they're all kind of tied together here. So, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. Excuse me. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, making or having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in verse 9, after, uh, as we said last time, after his, after giving his readers a stern rebuke in chapter 5, in the ending of chapter 5, and a somber warning there at the beginning of chapter 6, the author is now seeking to encourage his readers once again. That was the whole purpose of this book. It's one long exhortation 
to keep following after Christ. So he's returning to that purpose. And, um, and then in verse 10, the author expresses his confidence in their future, which is rooted in those two things we mentioned last week. And that is, he sees fruit in their life, and God is faithful. And those are the things that we should be looking for. Those are the things that give us our assurance. We look at our lives. We look for the fruit of the Spirit, praying that we do not deceive ourselves, and then clinging to the promises of God um, that, that, are, uh, that He attributes to those who have His Spirit. Uh, verse 11, he exhorts them to persevere in their diligence to the full assurance of hope. And then in the, verse 12, the author gives them some caution and some counsel. Caution not to be sluggish in their actions and counsel to imitate those who came before. And now there is no one that exemplifies this idea of living in hope more than Abraham. Paul tells us in Romans 4.18 that Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. The author of Hebrews draws our attention to Abraham because he is known as the father of believers. And the record of his life is recorded and preserved in God's word for this very reason. Abraham's life shows us how faith and hope are connected our faith gives us hope. And then our hope strengthens that faith. So we begin here this morning in verse 13, um, looking at something new. Verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So much like our Lord did in his ministry, the author here of Hebrews likes to use illustrations to make his point. And we looked uh, last time, I think, at uh, the illustrations in verse 7 and 8 of the worthless land that is cursed and burned. And the author used that to illustrate the hard heart of believers and the future that they face, or the hard heart of unbelievers and the future that they face. Uh, so now he is using Abraham to illustrate a life that is uh, lived, a life of hope that is lived by faith. So God said to Abraham, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And in verse 15 we see, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So Abraham, having patiently waited. Now, these seasons in our life where we are patiently waiting, where we have to patiently endure certain things, uh, this can be a time of spiritual attack. There are times in our lives when it seems that we may never obtain the promises of God in our life. And it is easy to wonder. It is easy. Will God really come through in my situation? But it was only after patiently enduring that Abraham obtained the promise. Remember, God came to Abraham. Uh, he came through for Abraham, uh, even sealing this promise that he made with an oath. Remember, Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill the promise, which was the birth of his son, Isaac. 
Then Abraham waited another 60 years for the birth of his grandsons, Jacob and Esau. And Abraham died at a ripe old age of 175. And he lived long enough to see one son of the promises of of God. That was um, Isaac. And long enough to see uh, one grandson born of the covenant of God. And that was Jacob. And we remember the story of Abraham. It is preserved for us. The story of Abraham and Isaac and how Abraham waited, like we said, 25 years for this son, this one promised son from God. And then God commands him to offer him for a sacrifice. And Abraham did not hesitate. It grieved him, you could tell in the story, but he did not hesitate. And he went and to fulfill the uh, the command of God, and God, um, and God stopped him from following through with it. It was a test of Abraham's faith. Did he really believe what God had said? That he was going to make him a, a father of many nations, and he waited twenty five years for the son, was commanded to sacrifice him, and was ready to follow through with that, still believing that God was going to make him the father of many nations. So did he truly believe? Yes. And we know by his actions. That's how we know. We know by his actions. He obeyed God. And we know that this is a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice. God basically did the same thing. He sacrificed his own son, not because some higher being had commanded it of God, because there is no higher being than God. God made this sacrifice because His own character demanded it. If God was going to have fellowship with sinners like you and I, then His justice had to be vindicated. Remember, God is perfect. Therefore, His justice must be perfectly vindicated. If one sin goes unpunished, then God ceases to be perfect. His justice is imperfect. He ceases to be perfect. And if God is not perfect, then He is not worthy of the kind of worship that God commands of us. Would He still be better than you and I? Yes, absolutely. He would be greater than you and I, but He would be no greater than all the gods of the pantheon of Greece. Just higher beings who still are fallible. But that's not the God that we know. The God that we know is perfect. Therefore, He is worthy of the kind of perfect worship that the uh, Scripture calls us to. So Abraham patiently and faithfully waited and trusted God, and God rewarded Abraham's faith by repeating His promise with an oath. Verse 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, in our confession, you'll find it in chapter 23, it speaks of, um, of oaths and vows. A vow is a sworn statement made to God. And its intention is to bind us to a commitment to God. But an oath is a sworn statement that you make to men, and you call upon God as, your, as a witness so its intention is to confirm someone's statement. When you, call, when you make an oath, you're swearing that your statement is true and you're calling upon God to judge you and to judge your statement. 
So someone who swears an oath, like, an, like the oath of office that our politicians swear, or the oath of office that the military swears, they call upon God to hold them accountable for their statement, for the promises that they're making. And in a society that takes their religion seriously, an oath before God is meant to settle disputes. Because God is the ultimate truth. And if you break an oath with God, if you break an oath that you make in His name, then uh, you risk divine judgment, bringing divine judgment upon yourself. However, in the days of Jesus Christ, many Jews would swear an oath by something considered greater than themselves, but they didn't want to really invoke the name of God. So they would swear by Jerusalem or swear by the gold of the temple or swear by the temple itself. And this is meant to imply that the oath was sworn upon something greater than just my promise. But technically, the temple cannot be a witness to anything. It's just a thing. It's not a, a who. So that is a meaningless statement. It was a meaningless statement, which meant that the oath wasn't really taken seriously. And in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 33 through 37, um, Jesus forbids this sinful behavior. He says, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. And the verse says that in all of men's disputes, the oath is meant for final confirmation. So God gave Abraham his final confirmation. Verse 17, it says, So when God desired to show even more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Because there is no one greater than God, he swore an oath to Abraham by himself. Now we know that it's really unnecessary for God to swear an oath because God is truth. But this oath showed that God's promises, like God's character, are unfailing and unchanging. So Abraham's trust in God's promise was really a trust in his character and who he was and who he is. And it became this, this faith, this trust became the gateway uh, to the fulfillment of the promises. God made a promise to Abraham. Then, to show even more conviction on his part concerning his purpose, God swore an oath. So, verse 18, that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So there are two things, two immutable, unchangeable things, and that is God's unchangeable, unfailing promise and God's unchangeable, unfailing oath, both of which proceed from his perfect and unchangeable character and unfailing nature. It is impossible for God to lie in either of these two things. Uh, Titus chapter 1 verse 2 confirms that, confirms that it is impossible for God to lie. And then 2 Timothy 2.13 says that God cannot deny himself, which is why he cannot deny his justice, which is why we need a Savior. 
because we violate his law. This is meant to be a strong encouragement to us. He says it as much. Uh, the Greek word there is paraklesis, and it is an encouragement or a comfort or a consolation. And some of your translations may use those words. But note that God is not content to give us a meager encouragement. He gives us a strong encouragement. Spurgeon makes some observations on what this means, and I'm paraphrasing. He says that it does not depend, a strong encouragement does not depend upon the circumstances of your life. A strong encouragement does not depend upon the enthusiasm of your public worship. A strong enthusiasm does not depend upon the excitement that you stir up in Christian fellowship. It does not depend upon human reasoning. And it is stronger, this strong encouragement is stronger than our guilty conscience. But this strong encouragement is for who? The, the, the verse goes on to say that it is for those who have fled for refuge to hold fast um, to the hope that was set before us. Recall in Numbers chapter 35 when they're setting up, God's giving the nation of Israel instructions on how they're going to set up the nation in the promised land. Um, the law of Moses commands that they set up cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. This is there were there were six of them, and uh, this was a place for someone who committed murder or um, caused the death of another one. Maybe it was accidental, or maybe they got into a scuffle and he accidentally died, or the axe head flew off and hit him, hit him and and killed him. Whatever it is, if he is is accused of murder then he could run to one of these cities of refuge. And God set up these cities so that they could flee there. And then the accused could be safe until the case would go to trial. It would protect them from the vengeance of the, of the, uh, of the, the victim's family. And these cities belonged to the Levites, the priests. And by their consecration as priests, the Levites were to act as mediators between the Israelites and God. So, uh, that meant they would, have been, they, they would have been gifted to mediate between someone accused of murder and the victim's family. So this is supposed to ensure that no further bloodshed happens. That no further innocent blood happens. Because when emotions get worked up, people tend to act on those emotions and sometimes they don't make the best decisions. Now, there's more rules to this. Uh, one of them was um, if you fled to the city, uh, you stayed there until the, uh, the high priest passed. And when he, the high priest died, then you could leave and be completely free of any guilt. Uh, there's a few other things, but the, the, the main thing about these cities of refuge is that they are a foreshadowing of Christ. They are a type of Christ, a type of Messiah. That, and the Lord provides this. So just as a person could seek refuge from the wrath of a victim's family, we flee to Christ for refuge from the wrath of God himself. And it is God who is the victim of our sin. 
So this is another reason for this strong encouragement. We can look at this and see how these cities are like Jesus. Since there were six of them, um, then anyone could easily reach one of those cities within a day or so. And Jesus is that close to us, closer even. Jesus um, is just a prayer away from those who are seeking refuge. Without the cities, there was no safe place for someone who is accused of murder. There was no safe place to go. So their destruction was certain. And it's the same with Christ. There is no alternative to Jesus Christ. There is no alternative to Jesus Christ. He is the only refuge from the wrath of God. And the cities of refuge were open to all, not just the Israelites. No one who fleed, who would flee to a city of refuge would ever be turned away. And it's the same with our Savior. No one who flees to Jesus will ever be turned away. Both Jesus and the city of, cities of refuge uh, provide protection for those within those boundaries. So those outside of the boundaries were at the, were, were, um, were at the mercy of, uh, of the victim's family. And those are outside of Christ. Well, there is no mercy. Because the mercy of God is in Christ. But there's one crucial distinction between Jesus and the cities of refuge. And that is that the cities of refuge were only there to help the innocent from being falsely accused, convicted, and put to death. But for Christ, the guilty come. The guilty come to Christ and find refuge. Because we come to Him and He makes us innocent before God. Brothers and sisters, this is the purpose of God's Word. When we meditate upon these things in Scripture, like the cities of refuge, and we just sit and we think about what they do and how they functioned, and then we compare that, it all points to Christ. It's all about Christ. And if we have our faith in Christ, then this is meant to be a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This is a hope we have, or this hope, Jesus Christ, is a sure and steadfast anchor. Again, the author is using some illustration to make his point. Uh, an anchor was a common figure uh, for hope in the ancient world. We understand it kind of metaphorically because we know what an anchor is and what a boat is and we know what it does. But it would have been, it would have been, it had a more profound effect upon them. Uh, it's obvious that it, what an anchor does, and it is obvious that an anchor is really important during a storm or during rough seas. And the rougher the weather, the more important the anchor is. But even in calm water, the anchor can be important to keep you from drifting 
And we've already seen that used in Hebrews. So like a boat that's anchored in a harbor, we are anchored to Christ, and this anchor is firm, but it's unseen at the moment. Christ has entered the inner place behind the curtain. Now, um, you guys remember the descriptions that we've, we've had before of the temple. And there's different areas outside, different courtyards outside the temple. And you get closer and closer to God as you get to the temple. And then inside the temple, there was one room that was set apart with a big veil. And that one room was called the Holy of Holies. Inside there was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was, it was referred to as the mercy seat. And this is where God's presence would be with his people. And we'll see more of that in some coming chapters. But I just want you to know that this is where this is, he's using this illustration to show us that Christ is now in the presence of God. And we must keep in mind all that the author has already said about Christ. That Jesus Christ is greater than the angels and the prophets who came with the message before. That Jesus Christ is better than Moses and the law. Jesus Christ is greater than everything. He is the Son of God and He is our advocate. And He stands in the presence of God. This confident hope is exactly what the ancient believers needed. The ancient Hebrew believers needed in order to remember. They, they needed this hope to remember the purpose of of why they had left the Old Covenant and, was per, and were pursuing Christ. And it's exactly the medicine that we need, that discouraged Christians need today, that Jesus Christ is an anchor that we can hold to. This is sure and steadfast hope, this Jesus of Nazareth, the one who loved you and died for you, bears witness that you belong to Him in the very presence of God. In verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ, having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we're seeing this, this temple language of the high priest and the inner... Uh, uh, behind the curtain in the inner in the inner room, the Holy of Holies, and it's speaking of uh, or it's bringing us back to the subject of Jesus as the great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, which was already mentioned in chapter five, verses six through ten. And this thought continues into the next chapter, but I want to draw your attention, and we'll talk about that more. But I want to draw your attention to this one word here forerunner forerunner this is this is a tremendously important word the greek word is uh pradromos and a pradromos was a um a military reconnaissance man and he would be sent ahead of the main body of troops to take observations um and to spy on the land and to scout out the land uh, so he was a forerunner. He went ahead of them. A forerunner is someone who goes in advance to a place where the rest of us are going to follow. And this is the only place in Scripture where this word is found. And it is used about Christ. It is used to describe Jesus. So hear me on this. 
hear me on this. The use of this word points to a very important distinction between Jesus Christ and the Old Testament high priest. The Old Testament high priests did not enter behind the veil as a forerunner. They were simply there temporarily as a representative. And I know any of you who've been here for a while know this whenever I, whenever I get into this. And I, I love this image from Scripture. But Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 say, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So we know that this is after the resurrection. He was tried, crucified, died on the cross, buried and resurrected. And now they are saying the disciples still misunderstanding things said, are you now going to establish the kingdom? They wanted that old kingdom with Solomon and David. They were the superpower of the earth. They didn't realize that Christ had something so much better prepared. He was born. Jesus Christ came born into ordinary flesh, resurrected into glorified, glorified flesh. And then Jesus, um, so he entered the world like any other by physical birth. But then when he left... He rose up on the clouds into the throne room of heaven. And we read about that already prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven. So here Daniel gets to see what was happening from the other perspective. The disciples are watching Christ ascend from the earth. Daniel seeing it from the throne room of God. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the kingdom that he came to set up. This dominion is the dominion that Adam was given and lost because of sin. Christ comes. The Son of God comes and he conquers. He overcomes all the temptations and the trials and the struggles that we fail to. He overcomes. He overcomes and conquers our enemies. And then he returns to his father, victorious over all of his enemies, victorious over all of the tasks that God had sent him to accomplish. And because Jesus Christ was victorious, God the Father crowned him king over all of creation. Jesus Christ doesn't get to be king of kings just because he's daddy's boy. No, he earned it. He come to earth and earned it. And right here, brothers and sisters, 
right here in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 20. Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ has entered heaven as our forerunner. Brothers and sisters, can we agree on one thing? That if there are no followers, then there is no forerunner. If there are no followers, then this word forerunner is nonsense. It's meaningless. Jesus has entered into the immediate presence of God the Father so that His people can follow Him. This is your great hope. The joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation because you belong to this King. He come to earth a boy, grew to be a man, and conquered everything that you and I fall to. And if you belong to Him, then He is your forerunner. He is there, preparing a place for you even now. Making amends, mediating, mediating at the throne of God on your behalf right now. So when you sin, you can turn to Him in prayer and know that He is faithful. As Scripture says, when we are faithful to confess our sins, that He is faithful to forgive us. Now there are people today who claim that you can have Jesus as your Savior and be bound for heaven but not accept Him as your King. This is such foolishness. It is nowhere to be found in Scripture. You cannot divide Jesus up. Jesus Christ, the King, and Jesus Christ, the Savior, are one and the same. How is Jesus Christ your King? You submit to Him. You surrender. You submit to Him and His authority. You obey Him. You strive to obey Him. You do the best you can to follow this King. Brothers and sisters, that's all we can do is strive to be holy. Just as Scripture commands us to be. But we don't trust in our ability to do that. We trust that Jesus Christ has already done that and He's gone before and He's waiting for us. He will, or He's preparing for us and we wait for Him and He will come back. This is what makes Him your Savior. You submit to Him. You submit to Jesus Christ as your King and you become one of His people. And He becomes your Savior because Scripture says He came to save His people from their sins. You cannot have one without the other. There is no one without the other. He is a king who saves his people. He is a king who conquers his enemies and saves his people. That's who our Lord is. And he is in heaven right now, mediating for you, preparing a place for you. How does he become your king? You submit to him. How does he become your savior? He saves His people. This is our hope. This is our hope. This is why we can have, how did I put it a moment ago? That that we can have that, that joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation because Jesus Christ is a King who conquers and a Savior who never fails. Let us pray.